always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, when I want to go see this movie, virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Last time on the podcast, Sansk and I were lamenting our fate. We went 0 for 3 in trying to get big-time guests. We did not get Usher. Uh, we did not get Cuba Gooding Jr. We failed on Josh Duhamel, though apparently he was on Brazil and Canal, so we have to change our rating of Spaceman. But the big news is the hell with all that. We got De Niro! We got the legend! We got the GOAT! Yeah! I still can't believe it happened. It, it's been so surreal. I wasn't able to really enjoy the experience because I will tell the circumstances around it afterwards. But the reason that you are listening right now to Cinephile is you want to hear my interview with Robert De Niro. I'll tell you all the backstory about it afterwards and our interactions because that's often people want to know beyond what you hear. Hey, what was he like? What was the interactions? And I have a couple of great stories about that. But first and foremost, here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. On June 3rd of this year, I met Al Pacino, and now on August 23rd, I'm meeting Robert De Niro. So now I can die in peace, meeting my two favorite actors in a three-month span. First and foremost, can I call you Bob? Sure. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm wearing my Tribeca Film Festival shirt because I saw Taxi Driver earlier this year, and it was an extraordinary experience to see that film again on a big screen in front of a huge crowd. But I'm always curious about personal passion projects, and I think about actors and festivals and it's really you and Tribeca mm-hmm. and it's Redford and Sundance and you go back and you think about Tribeca and the fact that you know you and Jane Rosenthal put this together to try to build up New York post 9-11 and it's become this roaring success you know we'll get into the movies in a second but where do you rank Tribeca as far as your personal accomplishments well I, I uh, we started it after 9-11 and um, uh, I am very proud of it it's doing well it's been well received by people, and I'm happy that it'll hopefully be a, a real traditional part of the city, uh, fabric of the city for, for years to come. And I think that's the beauty of it is because, like you said, it's it's enriching film culture, but it's also giving back to the city. And, yeah. and no matter what, people will always associate De Niro, Tribeca, and if that brings people, and that it's also enhancing film culture, it's adding to your legacy, even though I imagine that's not really what your focus is. Yeah, it, well, I'm as I say, I'm very proud of it, and and uh, you know, Jane Rosenthal has been really the the, the driving force behind it, and uh, we started it together. But she and our whole team, um, they're really the ones who make it happen. I love the fact when I see again speaking of passion projects, the documentary you did about your father. Yeah, because the the public perception of Robert De Niro is very generous and loving and caring to those in his circle, but outwardly. Shy, quiet, keeps to himself. So to put a very personal film about your father, who, for those who don't know, was a brilliant painter, but in many ways underlooked. If you see Bob's film, he, he makes the point of how his dad probably didn't receive the recognition he should have. But to make that documentary, to put it in a very public form on HBO, what was the impetus for that? I always wanted to just do a, uh, a, a document his, his life uh, with the films that I had. There was a guy who used to follow him around, and we used some of it in the movie with a Super 8 camera, I guess, in, in the 70s. Uh, and then he uh, finally uh, got in touch with me. I, I was aware of him going around with my father from time to time. But then he got in touch with me, as I say, after my father passed away and uh, wanted to see if I, if I wanted the, the stuff, which I did. 
I think that I bought it from him. I thought he gave it to me, but someone reminded me that he, I did pay for it. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All works out the end. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, and then I, uh, though we didn't use as much as I thought we would, uh, I just wanted to, for the my kids, uh, my kids' kids, I wanted them who did not know much about my kids did, my older kids, of course, but my uh, my other younger children and even younger kids now did not know, don't know anything about him. I wanted them, so I kept his studio. I've taken them over to the studio to see it, and then I just, and I've always thought of doing a documentary, and finally I said, let me just do it. At the prodding of actually Jane Rosal, Rosenthal saying, uh, let's let's finally do this because there were contemporaries of my father who are in the documentary that uh, we were concerned would not be around at one point and it would be essential that they're in it and they are. Um, so that's how it started. And I, I didn't know how long it would be. I didn't know it would be an hour, two hours. It wasn't intended to be on HBO. Then they came and saw it and they said, would you be interested? I said, okay. Uh, and then it became what it became. Yeah, it's an extraordinary film because you feel like you're watching a home video. And like yeah. I said, it's it's a really important piece. And for those that really love Robert De Niro as much as I do, you should go out and watch the documentary about his father. It's on HBO. The new film is Hands of Stone. I watched it the other day. Um, what I was struck by particularly is the way that, you know, your roles have changed. And now the character of Ray Arcel, who plays this legendary trainer who, who trained Roberto Duran, you know, he's his mentor. He's his one looking yeah. out for him. And there's a wonderful scene about an hour into the film where he's arguing with his manager because mm. they've accepted the fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, the, uh, the follow-up fight. And he's saying, you know, you're, you're just so selfish. You're looking at this um, from the wrong angle. And if you, those who follow boxing or follow sports know how selfish the sport can be and how challenging it is. And I find there's lots of parallels with acting and with sports. What was it about Ray Arcel that, that got to you that said, I want to make this film? Well, I, you know, I didn't know him at the time. I met him once or twice when I was working on Raising Bull. Jake might have introduced you to some of the other guys in, in, uh, at that time around Jake, around the you know, fighters and people in the fight game and so on. Um, and I was very impressed with him because he was quite dignified, you know. He looked like the, they'd call him a banker. He looked like a banker. He's dressed up very nicely, mm -hmm. very refined, and uh, special, special kind of demeanor that in, in trainers that we know of, you, you don't, it's not that kind of, they're not thought of in that way. Uh, he was he was special, so I hoped, and I then read some books about him, and then uh, talked to some people. Not everybody who I would like, or the people I missed, mm -hmm. but his wife. I, I spent time with her, and she was great, and showed me pictures of them mm -hmm. over the years, and told me anecdotes and so on about him, and had a look at the script. And when she looked at some things in the script, she didn't like it. Other things, she said, said okay. <laughs> Uh, the usual. It's 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 sometimes it's difficult because you you have to balance what the people will say. Well, that wasn't how it was, and and then understand. But understanding that this is, I know we always say it's a movie, but it is a movie, and sometimes things have to change. Hands of Stone, by the way, is in theaters this Friday. I encourage you all to check it out. A, a real education. Again, I like boxing. I don't know a ton about Duran. The one thing I would know is Nomos, and I won't give it away. But in the movie, they show that fight, and there's some conversation about that so definitely check that out talking right now the legendary actor robert de niro here on cinephile the adnan verk movie podcast we do a segment on, on the podcast here bob called scorsese stories i'm obsessed <laughs> with marty um our first son his name is yusuf yusuf rashan scorsese verk 
<laughs> Very rare you get, you know, a Pakistani-American with an Italian Catholic middle name. But that's the, the blood we have for Marty. And my wife's pregnant with baby number three. If it's a boy, I might go with De Niro for the middle okay. name. So I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's great. You think of the great combos in film history and Mastrioni and Fellini and Kurosawa and Mifune and Sidney Pollock and Robert Redford and you and Marty. And the eight films that you've made together, and, you know, each one to me has such strong power. And the stories behind it is great. You know, they used to call you Bobby Milk around the neighborhood, and, and Marty knew who you were, but you obviously didn't run in the same circles. But I have this picture here of Mean Streets, and this is something I keep on my desk, and it's yeah. you and, and Harvey Keitel. And it's, it just shows, like, the, the chemistry that you two have and the bond that you and Keitel had you know, extended off the camera as well. What is it about you and Marty that, that connected so well initially with a film like Mean Streets? Well, I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I'd see Marty around uh, with his group on one street, and then we'd be here. We had a few, maybe one or two, who would go go between the two groups uh, and uh, hang with both groups. And <clears throat> and uh, but then, then I was told that he's at NYU and he's doing a, he's doing this play. He was doing Arturo Ui. This friend oh, yeah. went between and said he's. And then, <clears throat> so over the years, then I saw his uh, Who's That Knocking uh, with Harvey and Is That You, Murray, and some other th things that he had done. And then a mutual friend of ours, a critic, uh, a film critic, got us together f at a dinner one time, and we were talking, and I told him how much I liked the movies and so on, da-da-da. And, um, and then he was doing Mean Streets. So then we started talking. That was kind of after this dinner, mm -hmm. but and he had offered me like one of the the parts um, other than Harvey's who he that was set, um, and I was trying to decide. I talked to him from time to time. Well, should I play this part? Should I play that part? And so finally, I settled on uh, the part that I played, Johnny Boy. Mm -hmm. um, so did I answer the question? Oh, no, that's perfect. Yeah. So Johnny Boy becomes his character who. I, I mean, critics, they sometimes go a little deeper into these things. Pauline Kael's review famously really loved, you know, what you and Marty did and said that this is the birth of a great new filmmaker. As I mentioned, my wife and I went and saw Taxi Driver, the 40th anniversary of it. And here's what stands out to me as I have, by the way, Travis Bickle toy figurine oh, yeah. on my desk. <laughs> People always give me a second look. Why does this guy have a Travis Bickle toy figurine? But this is the, the amazing magic of Taxi Driver. I'm a Canadian guy, 38 years old. I was born in Toronto. I grew up in a small town. And yet I feel impeccably... You know, so impassioned about this film about a New York City cab driver that was made 40 years ago. Mm. And I think what it is is that, you know, people have connections to it, especially when I watched it again. It's really a movie, you know, for, for young men and particularly angry young men that you can really relate to feeling jilted yeah. and feeling upset by what Betsy does to him and the lack of connection that Travis has in the world. And, like, it's extraordinary to me, like, how the movie is so uh, universal, even yeah. though it's very specific. And I know you've often said it, it all began with Paul. It was Paul Schrader's story. He was hunkered down for 10 days and typed up the script. But what was it for you? Because Coppola famously told Marty, after you won the Oscar for Godfather 2, oh, this is going to help get this taxi driver movie made. And Marty said, we didn't think anyone was going to watch it, but it was ended up being a commercial success. We all liked the script. I forget when I read it. I read it <clears throat> sometime after I did Mean Streets. And um, we all just liked the script. Thought it was a terrific script. That that was there. And um, so it was easier to get it made after uh, Godfather 2. Uh, and um, we, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I've, who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows. Yeah. Um, but there was something like I, you can, I, I could even identify with being from New York, 
people all around in a city uh, identifying with being sort of disconnected as a young man. So as you say, you're from where you're from. I'm from where I'm from. I'm from New York. Still, you know, it's about a, a guy from out of New York comes and is disconnected. You, yeah. can, you can feel that being anywhere or being right from the place. So, right. Um, I, that just struck a, a chord with everyone. I the original poster is amazing. It says, on every city, on every corner, on every street, there's a nobody who dreams of being a somebody. I'm a, yeah. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I told the story on, on that segment, Scorsese stories, about Raging Bull, which is my favorite movie. You know, for so many of us, it is. And again, people focus on the fight scenes, which is only ten minutes long, but they're extraordinary because you know Marty changed filmmaking with those. But the story behind it is that you know he was hospitalized. You went to him with the copy of Jake Lamotta's book and said, "We've got to make this." And apparently, Marty said, "I don't, I don't like sports, Bob. You know that. I don't know anything about boxing. What, what, the hell, what are we doing here?" <laughs> but but you persuaded him. What was it about Jake's story? Who's the ultimate antihero, and yet it's an incredible film. It wasn't. I was at a. He was sick and this and that, and we were. You know, it had been delayed for a while. The shooting put off for this and that. One reason is I wound up doing. Uh, the Deer Hunter in between, but the the focus was always to do the movie. And then Marty was not well in the hospital and so on, and I just said, and things, I guess, were the way I remember it were just sort of not sure, but sure, but not, you know. So I said, Marty, if you don't want to do it, tell me, but, you know, I, 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 I've got to ask you because I want to do it. We want to do this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, so he said, yeah, I just, it just made him really think about committing to it, which he did. A film that I think is so underlooked in your career with Marty, King of Comedy. That was ahead of its time, showing how celebrity-obsessed culture was. And Rupert Pupkin, Marty, you said he thinks that might be your best role ever. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I had a lot of fun doing that. Again, Marty and I, uh, uh, he, he, there are some movies that I wanted to do more than he would, <laughs> and there are other movies that, that he'd want to do that I'm not crazy about. Or, but I'll do them because it, it, for, for him. Mm-hmm. So and um, that was one that Marty. I was remember trying to get him to do that and and so on and going over the script with him. And I love the script. So being on air, I always get scared when someone comes up to me. There's that great scene where the woman goes up to Jerry Lewis because I'm a huge fan. I just want to say hi. And he goes, "I'm sorry, I'm late right now." And he walks which goes, "We hope you're rotten hell." <laughs> like, no, well, she said right. she said uh, maybe that's what I can't remember. I haven't seen right. the movie. For- for a long time, but Jerry told us that story where he was about to go on in Vegas and he was at a just getting off the phone. Or so he was outside, a woman was there. Please, you'll just say, Oh, she was on a payphone, say hello to my son, my son. And then he uh, he's like, Can I gotta go? I gotta go. I gotta go. So he goes off. She says, You should get cancer. Or something. <laughs> this is the way people are. Uh, as we close up shop, Hands of Stone once again opening on Friday. We do a segment here, Bob, called Three Words. Can you describe Martin Scorsese in three words for me? Uh, lover of film, a fellow cinephile. That's about as good as it yeah. gets. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about movies. I love the comedies as well. Midnight Run and analyze this and other films that you've made. But it's an extraordinary career. Uh, you've inspired us so much. I know this is rare for you to come here to ESPN, but we we cannot thank you enough for doing this, Bob. So we really appreciate no, it. No, and when uh, we have another son, De Niro middle name. All right. I hope you appreciate that. <laughs> I've already decided. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the time. Appreciate okay, it. Okay. Okay. All right, so that was Bob. And now I feel like I can call him Bob because I asked him. We're all good with that, and we're, it's all fine. By the way, that took about like a 30-minute conversation between me and Tim Kirchin. What do you call him? Because when I met Pacino, without hesitation, I walked in and said, hey, Al, like it was like second nature. But with De Niro, I said, I think I'm going to start Mr. De Niro. And he goes, eh. and Tim's about to be 60. 
And he said, some people don't like Mr. When you call him Mr., they go, hey, that's my dad. Like, don't call me Mr. But I said, I'm definitely not calling him Robert. Nobody calls him Robert. So he goes, um, if everyone calls him Bob, I think you should call him Bob. And then I check with my dad, and he goes, uh, I would start Mr. De Niro and then say, can I call you Bob on the air? Because then it's very disarming. He goes, if you start Bob, you can't then go back to Mr. De Niro. Because if you go Bob, he's like, eh. Whereas if you go Mr. De Niro, then can I call you Bob? Yeah, of course, yeah, sure, which is what happened. So that was the first and foremost issue, how to talk to him. Also, I was in Williamsport, the Little League World Series, all week with my, my family. We, this is It was just lunacy. Monday night, we had to drive back 11 p.m. at night. It's a five-hour drive. Got back at four. Slept four hours. Sitter doesn't show in the morning. I got to go to the neighbor. Kids are crying. I'm like, oh, this is just wretched father, but I've got to go meet De Niro. Could you imagine? It stands like I brought my children here to meet De Niro. Like, what I would have watched him. Uh, you would have well, done what your What was bet. I doing? We would have gone to Rosillo's office, a couple yeah. iPads. But, I mean, it would have. It could have been a disaster. Uh, thankfully, though, my, my neighbor stepped up big time. My wife, Amy, and I come in here. When Sanzik, by the way, total pro, was all business. He left his job early for Cinephile, which was big time. He comes in. He's dialed in. Technically, everything's ready to go. When De Niro was coming, we saw Katie, the town poker. I saw her first, and I said, De Niro, and I said to my wife, Amy, here he comes. It was like, oh, my God. It felt like a surprise party. Like, get down. Here he is. Hi. Hey. But uh, I'll say this. The, the stress since I heard he was coming was 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 in there. It wasn't necessarily palpable, but it was in there the whole time, especially in that five-hour drive home. I'm like, don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. Hopefully this is going to go good. But in the moment, there was zero anxiety. When he opened the door, my first thought was, hey, we're the same height. <laughs> like, this is awesome. I get all these short jokes my whole life. I'm, I'm the same height as Robert De Niro. Take that. Big smile when he walked in. Like It felt like I was talking to my great-grandfather. He's 73. Happy guy. Hey, hey, Mr. De Niro, how are you? This is my wife, Eamon. She's a huge fan. If, it, if we could uh, have a huge favor and get a picture, yeah, sure, no problem. She says to him, I've been watching since I was 11. You're the reason I love movies. Oh, very polite. He sits down, and I said, I'm wearing my Tribeca shirt. He goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's good. Yeah. And then I said, you know, we went and saw a taxi driver, 40th anniversary earlier this year. And I said, I met Paul Schrader outside the screenwriter. This is where Stan's brilliant. This conversation could have gone at least five minutes. And then Stan's going, all right, let's go. Finger twirl because Bob had stopped to get a snack after doing Mike and Mike's. So we're already eating at a time. Like, listen, just save it for the show. Uh, and then that's what you heard. So after the interview is over, and and Katie, our town poker, tells me that, and I'm not trying to, you know, all false humility here, I'm the only one that De Niro actually had something to say after the interview. Like in the different interviews he did here at ESPN, it was handshake, see ya. She says, you're the only one that he goes, oh, I got something to say to you. After the interview concluded, as you just heard, um, when I mentioned Yusuf's middle name is Scorsese, and I said, you know, Pakistani-American, not often with an Italian Catholic middle name. So the interview's over, De Niro looks at me and goes, Pakistan? I said, yeah, that's where my family's from. Yeah, I've never been. And he said, uh, you know, there's a really interesting, he kind of mumbled, he goes, interesting thing, you know, in, in, in about the northern area of Pakistan, you know, the, the Hindu Kush. And I'm like, wait, he thinks I'm Hindu? I'm Muslim. I'm like, what's going on here? I'm like, let's just, I'm like, ah, and he's like, Hindu Kush, you know, they're Pakistan. It's really kind of, kind of interesting. And I was like, I'm sorry, you, you were there? Like you were traveling? And he goes, no, no, no. I said, there's a movie? He goes, no, no, there's an article. He goes, there's an article in the Times. He goes, really interesting. Hindu Kush. Northern Pakistan. He goes, really interesting. And he goes, you know, if you have trouble finding it, just let me know or my people know, we'll let you know. At that point, I wanted to be like, well, Bob, how about I just get your cell and I'll just text you. You, know, you can send me the article. We'll go out and have a good time. But he, the way he's just said it, let me, my people, I'm like, all right. He then goes, uh, Stan, his buddy was great. And he said, hey, that was a great interview. Because, you know, that was a great conversation. Because you really just kind of talked to Bob one-on-one. I'm like, well, I feel like I know him. Like, I've, I've watched this movie so many times. It actually felt very natural. He gives my wife Amon a hug and a kiss. She almost faints. 
as they walk around, it was only once they turned the corner, like, all right, Slater. And then I turned to Stanzik. Then all the anxiety came rushing back. Like, oh, my God. We just interviewed De Niro. I'm like, are you crazy? What the hell just happened? Like, how was it? But then there was no time to celebrate. It was like, I gotta get back. I got the kids are still crying. I'm gonna go back to Williamsport, a five hour drive, 7 p.m. show. I'm like, oh, God. So I really couldn't enjoy it. All I had time to do was get the picture, put it on the avatar, tweet it out. All right, here we go. Um, and as Stanza can attest, the first thing I said to you, I'm like, how's the interview? I'm like, seven? Because I was like, he was kind of mumbling a bit. I don't know how good it was. And you were like, eh. You were like, we, well, you were really nervous. And, and now that you've listened back to it, is there anything you wish you could have asked him that we didn't have time for you to ask him? Well, this is the thing. I, I wanted to start out with stuff he was interested in. I didn't want to just, you know, boom, Godfather 2. So that's why I was like, the Tribeca thing would be something that obviously is a passion to him. I'm wearing a Tribeca shirt. There's a connection, whatever. The thing about his dad I do think is interesting, the fact that he's such a private guy. He made this film about his dad. I probably should have done a second question on Tribeca. Hands of Stone we had to do, even though it's not a very good movie. I'll review it shortly. But like, he's here promoting the film, so I can't be like, yeah, Hands of Stone, whatever. It's not great, but let's talk about the stuff you did 40 years ago. Um, so you know, I wouldn't have done second question Tribeca. Other than that, I, it's not like I could have sped him up. Like He's kind of a thoughtful guy as he's talking. I felt like you know, we had to get a Goodfellas question in, although I asked a friend of mine, he goes, well, what, what would he have said? Like, what are you missing? It's not like he had a great Goodfellas anecdote for you. He would have said, yeah, yeah, yeah Marty and I talked about it. Yeah, Sorvino was great. Would you ever have asked him, like, why he's been in so many bad movies this late in his career? Yeah. Like, would you have said, hey, Bob, dirty grandpa, why? <laughs> if we had a full hour, like, and here's the biggest lesson from this. That 16 minutes flew. Like, it was, we, we, we I thought the, the time, as soon as you told me, we got to get going here. I'm like, oh, my God, like, it's, it's already over. If you had the real form, like if I had gone – so I was going chronologically, as you can tell. There, I went Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy. I love that we got King of Comedy in because it's a great movie. And, that, and I'm the only guy in the last two years who's asked him about the King of Comedy. Because even he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the one that Marty wanted to make. I'm like, it's an awesome movie. It's so ahead of its time. you got to see it. Bram Weinstein used to work here. When he found out I was a big De Niro Scorsese guy, he goes, King of Comedy? I go, oh, amazing. Uh, ahead of its time. It's all about celebrity worship and stalking, all the rest of it. Uh, and – so I was going crawling. So I would have gone Goodfellas. I would have gone Cape Fear, Midnight Run in there. Because he had mentioned to Mike and Mike. He's like, oh, I like Midnight Run. It's a pretty good movie of all the movies I've made. But if we had a full hour, then I would have said, okay, I'm going chronologically. I've said all these great films. Unfortunately, there's not a lot post-2000 that I think is noteworthy. What do you have to say to the criticism that Dirty Grandpa is not at the upper echelon of the other films you've made? Or, hey, Bob, I don't <laughs> think you deserve to get nominated for Silver Linings Playbook, <laughs> but you did. Right. That was the one that was, everyone's like, okay, when everyone points out, like, how bad it's been post-2000, like, Raymond Pacino, like, well, it was Oscar nominated, Civil Lines Playbook. I'm like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, he was all right. Like, supporting role. The only thing I will say to that criticism is there's not a lot of good roles for guys who are 73. Like, you know, it's a young man's game. So no There's not a good one. Sports. There's not a lot of good ones, but there are the few that you're like, okay, he could have been in Nebraska. No, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, Alexander Payne, you got to search for it a little bit. But I think that's what one of his friends said. He was quoted as saying, this was in an article, I think in the Post. He said, Bob's the type of guy who wants to work, which I can relate to. He's like, he's not the type who wants to sit around and just be choosy. He goes, he could wait and every four years do an independent film he cares about. We'd rather just knock out two movies a year. And if you're offering him $12 million to make a comedy, okay, great. I'll do that. I'll do hide and seek. I'll do whatever the hell you want me to do. Like, it's fine. And I'll mix in some David O. Russell movies for the critically acclaimed people, but... Yeah, it was such a thrill, man. The fact, oh, sorry. So then he says the Pakistan thing, he leaves. I'm like, all right, whatever. By the time I get to Williamsport, which is five hours later, I get an email from one of his reps. Now, it wasn't the guy that I'd met, Stan, but another guy. And I, I floored. It just said, hi, Bob really enjoyed the podcast. Here's that article that he mentioned. Like, this is pretty astounding. Like, A, we got De Niro. He took a helicopter to come to ESPN. He doesn't even like sports. This is already astounding. 
Two, we seem to have enough of a connection. They just goes, hey, you should check out this article. You know, based on your ethnicity, I think you'll enjoy this. And three, he actually followed up. Like nobody follows up. Nobody. I have close friends. I'll give you a call. We'll get together. We never get together. Of course we don't. In fact, he was like, hey, what's, what was that guy's contact information? Okay, hey, buddy, you go get a hold of him. He needs to read this. This is how important this is. For the record, the article is very interesting, but I, I'm just amazed that De Niro thought of it. Like, the whole time I'm discussing Mean Streets, he's like, all right, Pakistan, uh, Huffington Post or New York Times? Hmm, Hindu Kush. He'll like this. He was awesome, man. Like, anybody who says whatever they want about De Niro. Kurt Janassi was, was he intimidating? I said, not at all. I don't know about you, Stan. Like, I found him very disarming. He seemed like a nice guy. He was kind of hanging out. Yeah, not starstruck at all. I mean, you see him, you're like, oh, that's Robert De Niro, but you're not like loss of words. You were sweating a lot afterwards. Yes, no question. I, but on the drive, very nervous. During the moment, completely fine. Afterwards, I was like, oh my god, was it okay? Was this good? Was that good? Like I was, I had to ask Stan, can you send me the link? I want to listen to it. Was it all right? Did I screw up? Like at that point, I, I couldn't really enjoy it until you hear it. But even my wife said to me, she goes, well, okay, let's suppose the interview is dreadful. Let's suppose it's horrendous. Whatever you met De Niro, like you did, you did what you needed to do. Like, no one years from now is going to go, mm. he met De Niro, but the interview was really piss poor. I mean, a couple of those questions were like, mm, should have been a little more open-ended. Like, no, 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 they're going to go, hey, Burke got De Niro. Cinephile, what the hell is this? As I've mentioned many times, Stan's and I are not getting paid for this. It's pro bono. This makes it completely worth it. If we didn't have Cinephile, there's no way I could have weaseled onto this thing. Right? If I was in Williamsport and I go, hey, can I come on Mike and Mike today? Greeny would go, what? I go, hey, three-man weave. I'll jump in and go, no, no, you're not doing that. I mean, in fairness, I probably still would have met De Niro because of Mike and Mike. But <laughs> Also, I wanted to point out, you did not want a picture with him. Now, is this because you didn't want to be an imposition? This is right at the end. I go, Stanzi, you want me to go, oh, it's okay. And it's like a time thing. They were leaving. I didn't want to make anyone upset. They were very nice to give us the chance to interview him at all. So so there's nobody that you would say, I have to get a picture. Like Bradley Cooper's wandering in here. You're like, oh, let me get a We've picture. discussed Bradley Cooper before. <laughs> Talented actor. A little overrated when it comes to his looks. I think he's just, you know, he's popular, so people think he's attractive. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe some of the better-looking actresses I might be more okay. inclined to take Mila a picture Mila Kunis with. is wandering through. Oh, that would be a definite Let me get yes. a picture for yeah. Stanza. Yeah, I, somebody said, you got to get an I showed him that Mean Streets picture, and one of my friends was like, oh, should I got an autograph? I'm like, what, what am I, 12? Like, I, autographs? No, I, I want the picture. That, well, to me, is the, what The Stan. selfie, the picture, that is the new autograph. Correct. Yeah, that's all that matters. I don't give a damn about some scribble. Like, whatever. Uh, but the interaction we had afterwards was awesome. So um, <laughs> he's the man. That's all I can say. Uh, let's forward through and let's talk about some new releases. Last time we just destroyed, we exoriated Suicide Squad for good reason because it's a dreadful film. Uh, this time we'll look at some other films that are out there. War Dogs is the first film I'll be reviewing. Uh, this, by the way, is imitation Scorsese at its best. You might as well just figure Todd Phillips because I'm going to watch all of Marty's movies and go ahead and make this movie about guys who were – Selling who are arms dealers. They're young guys who would not expect doing this kind of business, but that's exactly what Jonah Hill and Miles Teller were doing. Um, but like I said, it's it's imitation Scorsese. From the soundtrack, you've got some rock and roll from the 70s. Uh, we got a little Beastie Boys, so what you want thrown in the mix. Uh, all the jump cuts and the style, like it's clearly one of these movies that's geared towards young guys. And for that, I thought it was successful in that venture. I thought it was an entertaining look at what these guys are trying to do. Uh, Miles Teller plays a guy who's a, a masseuse. He's just, you know, massaging old men in Miami. This isn't going well for him. He hooks up with his old buddy Jonah Hill, who's now selling arms to the U.S. military, and the way the story goes. Some twists and turns. At the end, I remember it all. I remember this story because they, they show you Brian Williams talking about other newscasters talking about it. Oh, I remember how crazy this was. But it, it does have that kind of unpredictable aspect to it in that how are these guys going to try to overcome 
what's up against them, including the fact they're doing all this illegally. Bradley Cooper, speaking of, it has a cameo in the movie. I think he'd be pretty good as a bad guy. Bradley Cooper plays uh, one of the arms dealers they get hooked up in. He's actually now blacklisted, so he can't sell the arms himself. But he meets with Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. He's like, all right, listen, I can help you guys out. But it's surprisingly menacing. I didn't know uh, Bradley Cooper necessarily had that in his tool belt. But I've given the film three stars. Like I said, it had plenty of style, I think, for the young male demographic. I'm sorry, with three what? Tours. Three Maple Leafs. I'm sorry. Now, let's get back to the branding style here. Three Maple Leafs, uh, for the demographic with which it's aimed, I thought it was effective and uh, entertaining film. Next one we're reviewing is Peach Dragon. I saw it on Redford's birthday because Robert Redford's in it, 80th birthday for Rob. Speaking of, now the other question becomes, how do you top De Niro? And we don't have a guest lineup for the next cinephile, but I, it would have to be like a Redford, a Dustin Hoffman, obviously Pacino. Well, for you, Giamatti. Giamatti would be amazing. And the last time we checked with these people after they canceled on us, they did say check back in the fall. So maybe we'll get Josh going on that. De Niro, Giamatti would be pretty good. Uh, but Redford's uh, good in the movie. I mean, he's, listen, it's a small role. He plays the grandfather. He's looking after the family. A lot of E.T. in this movie. If you love E.T., you love Peach Dragon. It's about a kid who's an outsider trying to uh, find himself. sees a friendly dragon out there in the forest. Um, and then obviously, unfortunately, ends up living there. Like he, he ends up becoming a guy who lives in the forest with his dragon because of what happens to his family. Eventually, he's discovered, and away the story goes. But I thought it was a really sweet film. I thought for family films... Um, the, the dragon obviously is amiable. You have to have a character that is going to be really sweet and endearing and that the kids are going to like. And, and it's well done as far as the animation and the special effects are great. There's some wonderful aerials of the dragon soaring. And I think if you're a kid, you're up there and you just you find it majestic that this guy can actually fly into the heavens. Uh, the subplot is fine. You know, you, you, you can see it coming. You, uh, there's a reason why they're going to say, oh, who is this dragon? Let's attack this dragon. Let's kill this dragon. Let's study it for biological reasons, et cetera. Um, but I thought the film did a good job. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, by the way, plays the main heroine. She's the one who, who attaches herself to Pete and tries to help him in his journey. But a really sweet film. I think for family films, which haven't been particularly good this summer, I thought Pete Dragon was pretty solid. So I'm giving that three and a half Maple Leafs, owing a lot to E.T. Also a lot of where the wild things are on that movie, just with having these, you know, outsider cuddly creatures who are uh, misrepresented by others. So Pete Dragon, another one to look out for. Sausage Party was getting fantastic reviews, over 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I like these guys a lot, Seth Rogen, James Franco, Danny McBride, the whole crew. Um, <laughs> it's irreverent. It's over the top. It's uh, filled with sexual innuendo. It's uh, highly profane. It's definitely in that school of Team America World Police, if you love the South Park film. Uh, but essentially, it's about these hot dogs trying to <laughs> – the hot dogs are trying to get down with the buns. <laughs> so you got the hot dog by Seth Rogen and then the girls are the buns. But then you've got all sorts of – Sociopolitical issues here. We have an Arab character who's fighting with a Jewish character. We have a Native American character who's representing the afterworld. I mean, they, these guys, I don't know how much weed they smoke to come up with these stories. Like between Rogan and Evan Goldberg, they're like, all right, how high can we get? All right, I'm so baked, I can't feel my face. Now let's start writing the script for Sausage Party. I feel like that's how this thing came about. Like there should be a USC course on the, on the screenplay creation of Sausage Party. Like, who's the guy greenlighting this? A bunch of hot dogs trying to get down with buns and they're trying to escape. It's actually an allegory about religion because they start talking about how there's nothing else out there. So, oh, hang on a second. This is this is what real life is. People believe in something that doesn't actually exist. Oh, it really should just be focusing on what you can enjoy, which is being in the supermarket. And that's how our life is. There is no heaven. There is no afterlife. There is nothing outside of these four walls. A little heavy-handed, I thought, with that messaging, but... Very funny, and the ending alone. Dallas Braden saw it and told me, because you know, the, the opening's amazing. It's like a big musical production, four or five minutes. Pretty good. It's well done. But the ending, 
is about as disturbing an ending as I've seen in recent memory. It is so vulgar and so profane and crosses the line on so many different levels. Like every 17-year-old listening to this right now is like, i got to go listen. i got to go watch Sausage Party, especially the last 10 minutes. It is so vile. I, I can't – I cannot emphasize it enough. It's really funny. Like I'm thinking about it. I'm like it's, it's – I was laughing hard, but it is disgusting <laughs> on multiple levels. Sausage Party, two and a half stars. Shocking – two and a half – Maple Leafs, I beg your pardon, say, like, what's wrong with you this morning? For a movie that has uh, a lot going for it and it's relatively short, it's only an hour and a half, I still thought they could have cut 15 minutes out of it. I don't think I've ever done that. I've never seen a 90-minute movie and gone, eh, a little long. Could have been like 75 minutes. I got it. Hot dogs, buns, Arab Jew. Okay, I, I know where we're going here. Like, can we just speed this up a little bit? So I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. But trust me, if you're into that world and you loved This Is The End, which I did, if you love those actors and that kind of comedy, you go enjoy Sausage Party. Uh, that's definitely one that you're going to be enjoying. And last one review is Hands of Stone. Of course, De Niro was here promoting it. I'm only going to give it two Maple Leafs. It was muddled. It was cliched. Uh, all I know about Roberto Duran is no moss. And after watching this movie, I'm not sure I know a whole lot more, except that his story follows every trajectory of every Hollywood boxing film. Guy comes from an impoverished background in Panama, uh, fights his way through guts and guile to get to the top, beats Sugar Ray Leonard. This is the climax. Meets a woman, has a bunch of kids. We have a montage of kids, all named Roberto. He cheats on her because, of course, he's a jerk. Now he's partying. He's doing drugs. Now he needs redemption. Ray Arcel, De Niro, elderly character. There's his mentor, his sage. Going to pick him back up. He gets redemption. He fights Leonard, but he loses the fight. Oh, this is where Nomos happens, which, by the way, this is very interesting. The whole idea of Nomos, whether or not he said it or didn't say it, uh, that's in the movie, so that gets cleared up. The ending really feels tacked on, because if you look up Duran's story, after he lost that fight, it was like, all right, well, hey, Sugar Ray's the man now. But the movie tries to tack on a happy ending, which just feels forced. Like, it's just not there. It, it, I understand the fact you're making a crowd placer so you couldn't just show reality and Duran slipping into obscurity and never being able to overcome this Nomos thing. But the ending was, was a little tough to swallow. Usher beaming. Now he's a broadcaster because he's Sugar Ray smiling away. De Niro was good. I Listen, now he's morphed into these roles. Mentor, older guy looking out for him. And, you know, he was effective in that role. And I thought Edgar Ramirez was excellent. He played a really good Roberto Duran. He was in um, David o. Russell's film Joy, played Jennifer Lawrence's husband. So he did a good job of conveying that hunger and that tenacity and what a young, impoverished boxer from Panama would be all about and being very single-minded and then enjoying the spoils of his success. So acting-wise, actually did a good job. Usher was fine. I mean, he's just... But I think the hardest thing to do was grow an afro, which took him a year. And every interview he's been doing, hey, this is my real hair. Like, thanks. <laughs> Give us more on the boxing technique. But he got that beaming smile. If you got a great smile, and that's what Sugar Ray was known for, a big smile, all right, nailed that. So if you're going to see it for Usher, go for it. But I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Like I said, muddled and cliched. It's a typical boxing movie. So those are the new releases uh, when it comes to film. I did want to mention with Gene Wilder's passing, uh, by the way, this is terrible the way this works now in social media. Like someone just tweets you, what are your top Gene Wilder movies? And you go, okay, well, he's dead now because something obviously happened. Why else would you be randomly thinking about Gene Wilder today? But the first thing I thought about was Blazing Saddles, the great scene. He's talking to the sheriff, and he says, look at this. And the sheriff goes, studies Iraq. And he goes, yeah, but I shoot with this hand. <laughs> I watched that clip like 12 times yesterday. Studies Iraq. Yeah, but I shoot with this hand. Like, the, the, like, I'm telling you, those early Bell Brooks comedies, as good as it gets, like pantheon of comedies, top 10 all time, Blazing Saddles, could never be made today. Speaking of politically incorrect, it is so overtly racial and 
just incorrect on multiple levels. There's no way you can make that movie today, but I love Blazing Saddles, and Gene Wilder's hilarious, and you should go see it if you haven't seen it. The producers obviously remade as the musical, which I think a lot of people of this generation know, but the original film came out in the late 60s. Mel Brooks actually won an Oscar for it. The screenplay was so original. The song Springtime for Hitler, speaking of politically incorrect, very catchy for the time, and Wilder's very great. Wilder was great at playing these bright-eyed neophytes. Like He had this kind of likability and generosity to his spirit because he seemed like almost a man-child. And speaking of man-child, he was never better than Willy Wonka. And that's the first thing that came up when you look at all these emojis and pictures about him. It was like, yeah, that nebbish who was wide-eyed with delight. That's Gene Wilder right there in a nutshell. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Also loved Young Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein. And his films with Richard Pryor. Silver Streak's pretty good. Somebody tweeted me, how come no love for see no evil, hear no evil? I'm like, because it wasn't a very good movie. Like, I liked it when I was 10. If I watched it again now, I doubt I could get through it. But that's another film he did with Richard Pryor. Uh, another You is awful, so please don't watch that. Uh, but Silver Streak's pretty good if you want to see uh, work of him and um, Richard Pryor together. So sad to hear about Gene Wilder's passing at the age of 83, but really talented comedic actor, did a lot of great things. Uh, let's shift now to TV because I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, but I had to watch a couple of things because I, I got so much praise around them. Ben Lyons, my buddy, son of Jeffrey Lyons, of course, famous film critic. Ben's doing a great job covering films and, and showing off his own creative muscle. And he was a part of the Space Band team, which is how we got Ron Shelton previously on Cinephile. Although we should blame Ben that he couldn't get us to Mel either after saying he could. Uh, well, we'll take it up with Ben another time. He did recommend to me Junketeers, which he forwarded to me. And this is how you come to, again, you get to my heart right here. Eight episodes 44 minutes in length. I'm like, what? Uh, yeah, of course. I've got an hour. Whatever the hell it is, I'll watch anything if it's only one hour. Hilarious. Uh, the best thing I can say about it is it reminds you of Ricky Gervais's extras, which is a hysterical look at show business. And Junketeers is very much in that vein. It shows the way people work, um, you know, the journalists who are always covering these junkets and, and interviews and the vanity that they possess and the, the greed and the selfishness and I mean, it's just people behaving badly, done in a very funny way. And then you have the celebrities who are sending up themselves. So it's shades of extras and also the great Larry Sanders show, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. Like Gary Shandling really set the bar for behind-the-scenes show business now. Just awful these people are. And Junketeers nails that entire style. So really funny in that respect. Uh, Josh Jamel, by the way, has a cameo in the first episode. It's really good. The best episode, though, is with Chloe Grace Moretz. I think it's episode six, which is really funny. also want to mention The Night Of, which is this show on HBO. I know, I'm really behind the times. I finally listened to Serial, which I was a year and a half behind on. I'm like, wait, guy's name is Adnan, Muslim, Pakistan parents. I'm like, oh, i got to listen to this guy. I mean, if somebody just said those three things to me, I would have been all in. Uh, but The Night Of has similarities to Serial in that, again, it's about a Muslim guy, Pakistani parents, who you feel like is wrongly accused of a horrific crime. And yet, as the series develops, you start to see different shades of morality and the fact that this guy's got his own inner demons, which are now coming out in prison and maybe they came out even before he was incarcerated. But exceptional work. Uh, it's on HBO. It's now available, all eight episodes. What I love most about it was it was kind of following that template of like a law and order procedural. But Richard Price, the writer, who's one of my favorite writers, he wrote Clockers, a book called The Whites, Freedom Land, Samaritan. He's an incredible novelist. He's written some screenplays as well. He wrote Mad Dog and Glory, which is an underrated De Niro, Bill Murray, Uma Thurman movie. And he also wrote Color of Money for Scorsese and Life Lessons, which is a short film Scorsese did. Regardless, Richard Price is an amazing writer. The books and the screenplays. And the night of, he said, I'm not going to make a law and order where this is the protagonist. Here's the antagonist. Here's how it gets open and shut. Like, I'm going to make a film that I think 
or a piece of work here that I think is more true to life. Steve Zellian is the director. He wrote Searching for Bobby Fischer, wrote and directed that, which is a great movie. Also wrote Schindler's List, which he won an Oscar for. So I haven't heard much of Zellian in the last you know, decade or so. So they came out with this show the night of. It was supposed to be James Gandolfini starring. Gandolfini passed away. It was his passion project. Price knew Totoro because they worked together on Clockers. So Totoro stepped into the Gandolfini role and was incredible. It's, it's, I feel like now the show's over. I'm not sure how much you'd want to do it. We should try to get Totoro on because I'm telling you, he he has eczema in this show, and it is so painful and yet painfully funny because anybody who ever has a condition like this, which is so visible to everyone, like not only is it awful because it's so futile and there's no chance of any sort of solution and you're desperate for any sort of solution, but it's 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 there for everyone to see. It's over, so everyone just looks at you and goes, oh, God, and they recoil and there's scenes in the subway. Turtle scraping his feet. People are like, oh, this is so squeamish and disgusted by him. Like, he himself feels so grotesque, but there's no solution. And I think, you know, what Price is trying to show here, it's a metaphor for the judicial system. Like, you keep scratching away at it, and you can't solve it. There's, there's no solution to it. He was asked about it and said it's actually an original British show that they're adapting. And he said he actually asked the author. He goes, hey, what's with the eczema? Like, everything's eczema, eczema. This guy's a disaster. And he goes, oh, and the author said, oh, I have eczema. <laughs> and Richard says, oh, I got it. And they go to me, he goes, if you're a writer, everything you have, whatever malady or ailment, always is in the show. And Clocker Strike, the drug dealer, has asthma, which Richard Price has. In this show, Nas, the main character, Nasir Khan, has asthma. Richard Price is like, yeah, I always just throw in a character who has asthma. He's like, yeah, I have asthma. So I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Writers just are always throwing in things. So it was based on a real writer's issues with eczema. But like I said, it's not only played for pain, but also really funny because Totoro has that hangdog expression on his face. Like, God, can someone just cut off my feet? I'm in such pain, I can't take this. Um, but I thought it was atypical for being a procedural, for being a show. And speaking of prison shows, it had elements of Oz, which is such an incredible show. So I was happy to be reminded of the greatness of Oz. But check it out. It's uh, called The Night Of. No easy answers, no easy resolution, just showing the judicial system and the way law and order works, and it's slow, and it's monotonous, and it's deliberate, but I thought it was gripping. And particularly the finale, all I tweeted was just extraordinary. I thought, because going into it, you know, the whole question is, is Nas guilty or not, and who did it? And I was like, I hope you know, they don't answer both, because you don't have to. You don't have to answer who did it. You have to answer what happens to Nas. You can't end the movie and just go, and the ver- all rise, and the verdict is, and then the, no, no, hang on a second, we need to get a resolution. As I talked about with the verdict, Mamet originally in his screenplay, the movie, he didn't have an ending. And the producer's like, what the hell is this? Like, you can't have a movie called The Verdict and there's no verdict. Wait, the verdict question mark? So uh, I will only say this. The night of, you get resolution, but not the resolution that I think a lot of other shows would go towards. Four Maple Leafs for the night of, Junketeers, three and a half, and go check out some great Gene Wilder films. Actors Showcase. I was waiting for Stanzik to jump in on the night of. I wasn't sure if he'd seen it or not. He's telling me now he's seen everything but the finale. So next in a file, way with beta breath, Dan Stanzik's thoughts on the night of. So far, though, you're all in, right? Oh, it's tremendous. I don't watch much television anymore, but that is one show, one drama that I actually do follow. Not a boy. Somebody said to me, they go, the ep- episode one was one of the greatest episodes of all time of any dramatic television. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, it was awesome. Obviously, I was hooked. But then another person argued, I think it was Andy Katz. He goes, well, after the first episode, it's gone down. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because the first episode was so suspenseful, it was so riveting. I'm like, yeah, it's called the pilot. The first episode, they got to grip you. And then it's just kind of slowed to a trickle. I'm like, no, I, I, don't, I don't find it slow at all. I find it deliberate. It's definitely methodical, but I'm enjoying everything about it. Characterizations, the dialogue. You just made me think of this, and if you have a good answer, great. If not, we can do it later. Yeah. 
What is your favorite one season of television of all time? Oh, wow. it's a good tease. All right. We'll do that next in a file. Favorite there we go. You'll get that. You will time. not get my review of the night of. You will get that. <laughs> all right. Um, Stanford Steve, one of the uh, good guys here at ESPN, works on Scott Van Pelt. So he used to work on uh, Van Pelt and Rosillo. Uh, I saw him the other day. He had a bone to pick with me. He said, you don't like Tom Hanks. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, no, I, I, I check your tweets and stuff, and you don't. You don't give him nearly enough love. You don't think he's America's greatest living actor. And I said, listen, I really like Tom Hanks. I think he's a great guy. Everyone tells everyone says that about him. I like a lot of his films. But you're right to a point. Like, I, I don't like Forrest Gump. I'm very on the record about how that's just overinflated fluff. Like, it's about as overrated as it gets. So we're going to do top five Tom Hanks films, and you better believe I'm not putting Forrest Gump anywhere near that, that dreck of a film. 1994 Pulp Fiction, which changed filmmaking, was up for Best Picture. And The Shawshank Redemption, which was a commercial flop and only on DVD and, and I guess at the time VHS and Laserdisc, where the hell people were watching, became an enormous sensation. And now Shawshank Redemption is like one of the most top ten beloved films of all time for people under the age of 30. People love that film. But no, neither Pulp Fiction or Shawshank Redemption won Best Picture because of the story of a dim-witted soul with a great power-packed pop soundtrack of the best music of the 50s and 60s and wonderful montages melding him with certain presidents. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I, if I ever meet Robert Zemeckis, I'm like, yo, man, Back to the Future, the bomb. Forrest Gump, <laughs> overrated. Like, it could not have been more sentimental, more feel-good fluff in that movie. Stupid is, stupid does. I'm like, what? That one, best picture and best actor? And I get people who go, oh, well, Hanks is pretty good. I go, no, he was fine. I guess doom. Love is like a bulk of total. It's like, no, 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 no. Morgan Freeman, best actor. Travolta, best actor. Either of those guys should have won. He should not have. No, he should have been at the Oscars. Tom Hanks should not have been there. Number five, Saving Private Ryan. He's awesome in it. In many ways, it's the typical Hanks role. Idealistic guy. I thought that he was great because he was doing less with more. There wasn't. A lot of emoting because they've got so much gunfire around them. People often point to the first, you know, 20 minutes of the film because it's breathtaking filmmaking by Spielberg. It's so visceral. It really brings the war to you in full force. But Hanks is amazing because he has to play the moral center of the movie. And for a movie that's kind of lean on plot and character and narrative because the war is so much of the focus, that's the plot. It's saving Private Ryan. Uh, Hanks really holds the moral center and does that just with the, his facial expressions and, and that kind of gravitas that he has. He has that one speech where he's like, Ryan, Ryan, I don't know who this Ryan is, but if that's my mission, he really kind of plays it well. Number four, Toy Story. Going off the board with some voice work. Woody is awesome. And really, there's nobody else who could do it as well as Tom Hanks. Whenever he gets really angry at Buzz and has these crazed expressions, like, no, Buzz! I'm like, I can just picture Tom Hanks voicing it and crazy gyrations and gestures. And I think Toy Story is a masterpiece. I think he's great in all those shows, all those movies, rather. Um, so Tom Hanks props for Toy Story. So is that just a collective Toy Story? Because collective I will Toy say, Story. Yeah. Toy Story 3... Excellent. Yes, dancing. Excellent. Owen Gleiberman, my guy, the former film critic, Entertainment Weekly, now at Variety. He said the ending of Toy Story three made him cry, and he never cries at movies. I was close. <laughs> it's really good. That's a say goodbye to his toys. Yeah, that is Toy Story it's about, three. It's about growing up. Like there's a message for adults there. Oh yeah. Oof. So that's number three. Uh, number four, rather. Number three is big. I actually watched it again a couple of years ago. I loved it as a kid. He was nominated for an Oscar back in 1988. Just that playful manner about Tom Hanks and that goofiness. Uh, there's not many actors that I think could have done that. And, you know, it's such a far-fetched conceit, obviously. A child becomes a grown man and then has to survive in the corporate world. I mean, it's, it's, it's the epitome of high-concept films. You give one line and go ahead and do it. But 
Hanks was terrific. He was really funny. I thought he was really good at showing the drama. And the one scene, the, the girl says, you know, they're talking about like his bunk bed. He's like, you want to sleep together? He's like, yeah, but I get to be on top. She's like, all right. And then he jumps on his bunk bed on top. The joy that he has playing the toys. And, of course, the scene with Robert Loggia where they play the piano. That's like one of the great movie scenes of all time. So I put big at number three. Number two, I was so happy. If I have a knock against Tom Hanks, I do think he's typecast and really follows that role of, you know, good guys and moral gravity and all the rest of it. So when I heard about the number two film, I'm like, all right, finally, Tom Hanks is playing a gangster. This is good to see. Having said that, it, it wasn't the gangster I was hoping for. It's not like in Road to Perdition, he's Scarface. But I still thought it was a really good film. And I think Sam Mendes did an excellent job with the directing and the casting of Hanks because this was thinking outside of the box. And, again, he has a little bit more grittiness in this film than I think you normally see in a Tom Hanks film. I thought he was excellent with Paul Newman. To me, it was like tennis players just batting the ball back and forth, ground strokes, ground strokes. I thought him and Newman were so captivating together, that beautiful last shot, that tableau in the rain. And Hanks... Again, he, he draws on his well of reserve of what he does well, which is that nice guy equity. But again, he, he has the, the shades of the fact he's villainous and the fact he's a gangster, the fact that Paul Newman says to him, there are only murderers in this room. And number one, he didn't win an Oscar for it. So right now you're wondering, okay, well, it's not Forrest Gump. Adnan's going to put Philadelphia one. No way. I, I like that movie, but I have problems with Philadelphia too. That scene where he's listening to the opera is such a calculated move for an Oscar. I'm like, are you kidding me? When Denzel's sitting there watching the fire, it's like, here the music comes. Ah! I'm like, this is painful. I, I thought Philadelphia was an important movie in his career because it showed he had dramatic depth. And really the most important movie of his career, people will say, is a league of their own. Because before that, it was The Burbs and Turner and Hooch, movies which I enjoy, by the way. Funny comedies are good stuff. But League of Their Own, he played a guy who was disliked, and it was a loud mouth, and there's no crying in baseball, and, and very loudish. So they said people saw him in a League of Their Own. They go, okay, maybe he's not just cookie-cutter comedies. Then he does Philadelphia, wins an Oscar for you know a true dramatic role, follows up with a mess of Forrest Gump. But Philadelphia, I like it. I'm not putting it top five. I like it. He's good in the movie. Denzel's very good. But number one? It's just a man in a volleyball. Like, how the hell do you hold the scene? Castaway, I think, is incredible. I think that's the movie Hanks should have won an Oscar for. That's the movie someone goes, hey, is Tom Hanks a good actor? I mean, go watch the middle section of Castaway. Like, the opening's fine. Watch it when it's just him on the island until he gets rescued. And <laughs> marvelous. Like, marvelous. It was so incredibly rare for an actor to hold the screen. He's talking to a volleyball, for God's sakes. Wilson! And it's not even like when Wilson goes away... <laughs> Because, you know, he's just devastated and starts crying. It's better like when he's having interactions with him. He's like, what's that, Wilson? Oh, that is a good point. Hmm. Maybe we should go, Maybe we should try the shellfish today. Like, I, I can just imagine that set. Like, how tough that would be to get into the character in the head of this world. Um, but Hanks is amazing in Castaway. I mean, I don't know how he does it. Cause can, it, it. Can I just ask, what did you think of the ending of that film where he delivers the oh, last yeah. package? Because that's a oh, little yeah. over yeah, the top yeah, yeah. So, yeah, too much like, for me. Well, that's why I said the middle section, because that, that's where I'm like, this is amazing. The first section is fine. Whatever. He likes Elvis. He's fat. All right. UPS. So the ending, I used to have a real problem. I, I definitely hate that part of it. Oh, I, it's I, obnoxious. Yeah. yeah, the package is just like, come on. Again, it's, it's Zemeckis. He can't help himself. Like, what are you doing? Like, he did this crap with Forrest Gump. Castaway, he just has to tack on this happy ending. Especially the last scene I hate. Like, he's lost. He's driving. He's listening. I was getting the woman stops him. Oh, go that way. Kind of gives a faraway look. Like, oh, who's this hot chick looking at me? And that's the movie? Like, what? What is going on here? The Helen Hunt scene, uh, when I first saw it, I was okay with it because I was like, well, yeah, he has to go back and see her. And then she, you know, she, okay, she's married. I'm like, okay, that's good. Wait, you don't like that they make out? I didn't, yeah, I didn't like that, yeah. Because he drives away and then he comes back and I'm like, no, I don't think she's running after him. 
I like that she goes. I guess go to see her. Obviously, I like the fact that she's married. Great. This is reality, buddy. Like you were gone. Like we didn't know. Like oh my god. Hang on a second. Tennessee is an NFL team. Yeah, that's right. They're called the Titans. Like sorry, buddy. We couldn't wait around for you. We thought you were dead. I didn't like when he pulls away in the rain. She runs after him. Then they make it. I'm like, that, hey. That's a little over the top. But I think if this was ever a real life scenario, <laughs> there'd be a lot more than just heavy petting and making out in the rain. <laughs> But do you think she would have run after him at that point? I think she's Again, that, over the top. Over the top over to the get top, to that but, point. Right, but you're, the, the husband you think is dead comes back to real life. Something's going to happen. Okay. Regardless of whether or not you're married. No, that's fair. You're right. You do and that, that new marriage is ending in divorce. Oh, everything. Nothing's, no happy endings there. <laughs> but we can't agree. The, the UPS bag. Like, hey, loyal to the core. I got to finish my job. I almost died. I've eaten fish for seven years. I had a volleyball with my own blood on it who I talked to for years, who I cried about when he left. But hang on. Let me just deliver this package. There's a couple of video cassettes in here. Having said that, Castaway's awesome. Also generating consideration, uh, Turner and Hooch, funny movie, Dragnet, very funny. Him and Dan Aykroyd, The Virgin, Connie Swale, dun, 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 dun. And The Green Mile, good drama, a little long, but I thought he did a good job. Him and Michael Clark Duncan, uh, not making the cast The Terminal, which is an awful movie. I mean, there's some Drekkies, but I mean, every actor has, but yeah. The Terminal is about, whenever he goes, hey, Hanks, Spielberg, the best. I'm like, ah, oh, The Terminal. Apollo 13? Apollo 13, very good. Consideration? It. it was in consideration. I haven't seen it in a long time. I liked it at the time. I, I know, it's a bit of a miss, but I didn't, I liked it, but it's not what I think about. Stands to call in on Apollo 13. Send your tweets to let me know why Apollo 13 should have been in the top five. Those are Tom Hanks' five best films. Castaway, Road to Perdition, Big, Toy Story, and Saving Private Ryan. A Scorsese story. Question often comes up, you know, of the Scorsese and De Niro movies. Obviously, we had De Niro earlier on, so we'll continue the theme of the movies they did together, which is what I really want to talk to Bob about. Eight movies they did together. Um, Main Streets, Raging Bull, Taxi Over Goodfellas. People immediately point to those four films and go, have a day. You're never going to be able to top those. Uh, there becomes some, I guess, disagreement as to what the fifth film is. Um, some point to Casino, which I like a lot, but I'll be honest, I did find it a little derivative. Coming five years after Goodfellas, Pesci really felt like he was rehashing the same character. Stone was very over the top and screaming. I, I guess you could say she's never been better. She was nominated for an Oscar. But I thought that the histrionics of the third act of Casino, even for me as a Scorsese diehard, a little mild, two hours and 50 minutes. Like, I love the first half. It's kind of like a documentary, heavy voiceover. Here's how the casino works. By the end of it, I'm like, all right, we've just been bludgeoned to death. Like, just Billy Bats is hitting him with the bats. I'm like, all right, I, I've been hitting the head now enough. But as much as I like De Niro in that movie, I don't think that's the one. The one for me that I think doesn't get nearly enough play is a movie called The King of Comedy. So this came out in 1983, and it was a response to what happened with Raging Bull because Scorsese and De Niro – they were already stars. They, they got put on the map with Mean Streets. So people, the critics all knew them and the film industry knew them. They became stars with Taxi Driver. But they became megastars after Raging Bull. Like Raging Bull, people immediately were like, this is one of the greatest films of all time. De Niro won his second Oscar in six years. Scorsese didn't win, but he was finally nominated for an Oscar. So that was a big breakthrough for him. He lost to Redford for Ordinary People. But after Raging Bull, everyone knew, like, these guys are as good as it gets. They're legends. So King of Comedy is a film that Scorsese wanted to make in response to that because he said, I'm having a tough time here dealing with all this fame and celebrity. And, and today's world with the paparazzi and Facebook and social media and Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of it, King of Comedy is so ahead of its time. Go back and watch it. It came out in 1983. De Niro plays a guy named Rupert Pupkin who is an aspiring stand-up comedian who is terrible. 
Like his his jokes are awful, and he's a loner, and he's pathetic, and he's in his parents' basement. He has a terrible hair, mustache, and he practices his jokes, and he has cardboard cutouts of all these celebrities, and he pretends as if he's talking to them. He pretends like he's Johnny Carson. And like the, the, the Scorsese actually has like a laugh track. So when he's talking, he's like, oh, oh, please, oh, please. Because he's talking to Jerry Lewis as if Lewis is Carson. Jerry Lewis is like hosting his version of The Tonight Show. But then like he'll be doing this whole model like, oh, Jerry, please. No, no. Let me tell you the story of the time. Like, hey, mom, I'm danced. Mom, okay. Like he's yelling at his mom upstairs. I don't want the meatloaf. Because he's just this sad man who lives with his mom. But he's he's aggressive. He goes to where the, the show is being filmed and he has a tape of his material. and goes, hey, listen. I've got, I want to meet with Jerry Lewis. I've got some material. And the woman's like, who are you? He's like, I'm an aspiring comic. Like, I'm, I'm going to be on the show. And she's like, okay. And he's so delusional. He thinks that, like, no, Jerry wants to see me. And he's trying to convince the woman of that. And she goes, well, do you have a tape? Do you have a meeting with Jerry? And he's like, no, no, Jerry wants to see me. i got to go see Jerry. I'm going to talk to him. And she's like, well, how about you just give me a tape? Eventually, she stonewalls him. He gives her a tape. He goes, Jerry's going to listen to this tape, right? This is my material. She's like, yeah, I promise you he'll listen to it. So, like, you know, for a week, he's – Sandra Bernhardt, by the way, plays his accomplice. For a week, he's fretting. He's nervous. Oh, my God, what's going to think of the tape? He goes back. All right, Mr. Lewis, listen to the tape. This is okay. I think she's a little rough. I think she should play some comedy clubs whatever, whatever. And De Niro just, again, bulldozes through. He goes, well, I think that's you talking. Like, what did Jerry actually say? He's like, I'm telling you what Jerry said. He said, you're not ready for, you know, our version of the Tonight Show. Go to your comedy somewhere else. Get better, Greenwich Village. We have lots of comedians on the show. And he was like, yeah. And then from there, it gets really loopy. Then he ends up showing up at Jerry Lewis's house. Because <laughs> he convinces his girlfriend that, like, no, Jerry wants to see us. And she's like, what? And he's like, yeah. And they go to his house. It's this ornate estate. The whole running bit is his name is Rupert Pupkin. Everyone thinks his name is Pumpkin. And when Jerry Lewis shows up, Jerry Lewis, hysterical comedian. This is a dramatic role. He's awesome in The King of Comedy. The look he gives to De Niro, like, what are you doing? Like, I could have you arrested right now. Like, you should be in prison. Why are you in my house? Like, stop this. I know what you're doing. You're a crazy stalker. You already sent a tape. I know you followed me after the show one night. Like, just enough. Like, and, and De Niro's just like, uh, trying to, and the girlfriend gets it right away. Like, what? We're trespassing. And De Niro's so delusional. He's like, ah, Jerry, yeah, yeah. He's just being funny. He's just kidding. He's like, no, get out of my house. Right I'm going to call the cops right now. If I ever see you again, he's like, ah, this is the bit we do, me and Jerry. He then ends up kidnapping Jerry Lewis so that he can go on his show. And that's the climax of the movie. He goes on. And does like the, he actually his plan succeeds? They kidnap Jerry Lewis. Sandra Burner helps him. He goes out filling in for Jerry Lewis tonight. Here's Rupert Pupkin, and De Niro goes out just like he's Leno, Letterman, Carson, and he does the monologue. And after that, they he's of course absconded and <laughs> tackled. Like, like that's enough. But his his comedy when he actually does the bit is like it's not bad. Like you see, him, it's all right. Like he did improve. And as he closes with, it's better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. And the the. The epiphany, or not, not the epiphany, I should say, the epilogue to the movie is that he ends up becoming a star because of this. He goes to prison, but it become, he becomes a cause celeb because it's like, oh, my God, this is the guy who kidnapped Jerry Lewis. He actually was kind of funny. He writes a tell-all book about it. He comes out and he's this huge, roaring success. So it's a really warped view of celebrity culture and the way show business is. Ebert, who is as big a Scorsese guy as I am, obviously Ebert has now passed on, he actually didn't care for the game of comedy. He gave it three stars. He goes, you know, Scorsese's movies always have so much energy and vitality to them, particularly in the camera work. It's always swirling and moving, and you can feel yourself. And he goes, this movie is very stilted and very laid back. And it's a, he, Scorsese shot it like a TV show, so it's a lot of just medium shots, and there's no movement. It's very kind of cold and clinical, which I loved. I, I thought it was a real daring move by Marty to go, you know what? I gave you the world and, and all the great um, 
pyrotechnics of Raging Bull. Like, those boxing scenes are so incredible. This time I'm going to go steady and static and just have you focus on the performances and the dialogue. And, and he has said in interviews, listen, they've done Raging Bull, Tax Driver, Goodfellas. Marty has said, I think De Niro's never been better. Rupert Pupkin and the King of Comedy. So if you love De Niro and you love comedies and you love an off-kilter story, go look it up. Uh, I don't think you'll regret it. This has been Cinephile for the Ages. We had Robert De Niro on. I don't know how we're going to top this. Maybe Giamatti. Fingers crossed. I'm Adnan Nambrook. Thanks for listening to Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Nambrook Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.